when you meet Ivan, you'll understand what I'm about to tell you. Ivan is meticulous. He is very detail-oriented. He doesn't do anything halfway. Everything he does is thought through 100%. This crime was not thought through 100%. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 11, Ivan's Wife. This episode begins season two of the podcast investigation into the murders of James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchen. And the innocence claim of Ivan Cantu. If you haven't listened to season one yet, please go back and listen to that first, as the story will make a lot more sense and be a lot more rewarding if you do. Last season, you heard a lot about Amy Betcher, Ivan's girlfriend at the time of the murders, who became the state's star witness against Ivan. You also heard from Tawny, Ivan's off-and-on girlfriend in the 90s, and you heard quite a bit from Ivan's mom, Sylvia, she was wrapped up in the majority of the narrative in the days during the murders, after the murders, and leading up to trial. But there is another woman you haven't heard from, who is also at the heart of this case and story. And that is Ivan's wife, Tammy. Tammy Cantu. Tammy first met Ivan in 2005. She was in her 40s and furthering her education, so she was going to college and studying criminal justice. At that point, Ivan had spent four years on death row, and this is how their relationship started. We were studying the death penalty and uh, came across the case we were studying for Johnny Paul Henry out of Texas. Johnny Paul Henry is a Texas prisoner who was convicted of rape and murder. His case gained attention due to the fact that he was intellectually disabled and facing the death penalty. He was on death row with Ivan. And it intrigued me because I was going into this, wanting to go to law school, become a prosecutor, and I was totally for the death penalty until this particular case came across our desk from our professor. And so I decided to do my thesis on him. So... I uh, contacted his family, his attorneys, and did a lot of background research. And then I finally reached out to him. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I received a letter from another death row inmate. And I freaked because I'm like, oh, my God, this guy has given out my address to all these other crooks and killers. And, and it was Ivan. And he was explaining to me that the letter that I wrote, Johnny didn't understand the letter because he is mentally ill and that the questions I asked, he couldn't answer because he was still, his case was still being 
reviewed by the Supreme Court. So that's how we met. He was like uh, a big brother to this guy. This guy was older than Ivan, but mentally the guy was way younger. And so Ivan was like that with a few guys that he would look out for them and help them write letters and answer letters and legal issues and things like that. And so he reached out to me, letting me know, whoa, who are you? What are you doing? What are you, what are your intentions? You know? And, uh, so I wrote him back and I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry. No harm. Um, this is why I was, was writing him. And so then we just started writing each other. She wrote a nice letter, but but in, assess, in essence, she stood her ground. She assumed everybody here was guilty. That was Ivan from an interview in 2011. And this is what he remembered from their first correspondences. She assumed everybody here had great attorneys. She assumed that uh, the state was not going to execute somebody or that they, that they fully investigated every case before they executed somebody. And once I informed her of the system and the pitfalls on how how it really it's a joke and then the truth of what's going on here uh, she slowly but surely turned around it, it got to be where i'd get a letter from him i'd write back and then he'd get a letter from me just like answer a letter and write a letter you know and then i started you know looking into his case and i'm like oh my god you know this this is horrible and then I started asking questions and I just got involved in it and dug up some things that weren't in court and made me question the whole conviction, the whole trial. And and I didn't realize anything had evolved until my first visit with him, which was, I believe, in February of 2006 was when I saw met Ivan face to face for the first time. I've visited people in prison before, but never on death row. So it was very intimidating, to say the least, because uh, of the security measures. And you visit through, you visit with a telephone and like inch, three inch uh, bulletproof glass. So there's no physical contact. You just talk through a phone. But it wasn't uncomfortable. It just, it, it wasn't from, from the first time when, when he, they brought him in and sat him down in the cage. You know, Tammy, she questioned me on a, on a lot of, that. originally she thought, she thought I was, you know, lying to her about my case and lying to her about the system and misrepresenting things. And when I was able to prove to her and show her that I wasn't and that I was telling the truth, then she became my, my biggest supporter. It's strange because here in the free world, you, you go on dates and you get to know each other in a different way than you get to know somebody through through the jail, through the prison, and you really get to know somebody through their words and their letters because the truth is going to be in the words. It's going to be in the letters because if you write for a long time and you lie about something, the truth is in there somewhere. And I I didn't uh, realize that I had feelings for him until... I was on a date for Valentine's Day in 2006, seven, I don't remember. And, and uh, I just, he came to my mind and he was in my heart. And then I knew that something was there and I went home. I wrote him about it. I just laid it all out there. And I was supposed to go visit him on a Saturday night visit. And 
I, wa- I was packed, ready to go because it's a long drive. And I wasn't going unless I got a response from him because I didn't want to embarrass myself. And so I just so happened I was sitting in the garage waiting on the mailman that day and that letter came and he was right there with me. And so his response to you was, I think I'm falling for you too, or? Yes, and but I don't want to do anything about it until I get out of here because it's not fair to you and along the lines of that. So I jumped in the car and went up there and we, we talked about it. And, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I understand your side, but the heart, the heart rules and this is what I want to do. I want to fight for you and get you out of here. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so he was like, okay, <laughs> I was the aggressor, <laughs> you know? What, what was the wedding like? Okay. Well, we talked about getting married and everything. And he was like, I'm not doing it. We're not doing it while I'm in here. I'm not doing that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know that that's fine. I can wait, whatever. It doesn't matter. So it was April 2nd of 2000. And I went to visit and he was sitting there and he asked me to marry him. But I just started laughing because I was thinking April Fool's. And uh, he was like, what the hell are you laughing at? He goes, I'm dead serious. I'm like, "Okay." (laughs) So he uh, asked me to marry him. I said yes. And then uh, he picked the date 777-707 because I worked at a casino at that time. And, uh, you know, lucky seven. So the the wedding, he wasn't there. I married my daughter. She stood in for him. Um, the minister married married us at her house, and he knew the exact time it was going to happen. So he was like there in spirit, I guess you could say. And uh, then I went visit him that Saturday night as his wife. Yeah, she's she's a, a, a wonderful, genuine, amazing person. I mean, I do. I love her. It was a game changer for my life. You know, not only did it, you know, build inspiration for me and lift me in my spirits in, in this horrible dungeon in this place, but it, it also, I, I, if it wasn't for Tammy, I would be dead right now. People have asked, why is Ivan just now trying to get out? But, I mean, you've been trying for 15 years, right? Right. He had his, Two original trial attorneys. He had a direct appeal attorney. He had a state habeas attorney. And when I came into the picture, his state habeas attorney was Jan Hempfield. And she was a horrible, horrible attorney. Early on in my letter correspondence with Ivan, he wrote me this about Jan Hempfield. Keep in mind that from the very beginning of the legal process, every legal safeguard put into place to catch mistakes failed me. Here's an example of one of the biggest legal failures pertaining to my case. After my conviction, the most important appeal is my state habeas writ. This writ lays the foundation for all my legal arguments requesting that a new trial be granted. My state habeas writ attorney was a woman named Jan Hemphill. For a very long time, she dodged my letters and suggestions mentioning how to achieve success with my case. Eventually, Miss Jan Hemphill visited me here at the Polensky unit in October 2003. And during this short 15-minute visit, I explained the investigative task required to prove my innocence. 
Luckily, she realized that my case required more attention and resources than she could provide. To my surprise, Jan Hemphill agreed to withdraw and remove herself as counsel. Sadly, when she filed the motion to withdraw as counsel with the 380th Court of Texas, Judge Charles Sandoval denied the motion and forced me to keep her as my attorney. Think about that for a minute. Judge Charles Sandoval forced me to keep an attorney knowing they didn't have the gusto and resources to help me. From that point on, of course I was doomed for failure. So, after what should be considered an ineffective trial counsel that didn't deliver an opening statement, called no witnesses, and conceded Ivan's guilt during the closing arguments, this was Ivan's second go with the justice system. And we got denied there, and then uh, we didn't have an attorney, so I uh, heard of a couple attorneys that were, you know, taking cases pro bono, if we could get them court-appointed or whatever, so... I seek out two attorneys, and they both agreed, and the state approved them, and they took the case, and here we go with two new attorneys, a private investigator, and nobody did anything. Absolutely nobody did anything. It got to be to where my bank account was almost gone because every email he charged me like $20 to answer an email, and then... I saw that Ivan was going to die. He This was back in 2008. I just knew that the day was coming because nobody was fighting for him. And uh, so I got all of the evidence, what the other two attorneys were not doing to help Ivan, and I drew up a brief. And it took me a few months to draw it up, and I brought it with me to visitation and left it in the car, of course, and I told Ivan what I was doing, and I was told him, I said, I'm sending it to our federal judge. Your federal judge needs to know how bad it is that you're not getting any representation. And Ivan was like, you're going to do what? And I'm like, yes, I'm doing it. I've drawn up the brief, got all the evidence in there. I'm sending it. And he told me no, and I told him, I said, do you trust me? And he said, yes. I said, I trust my gut, and this is the right thing to do. So when I left him, I went straight to the mailbox to the post office in Livingston, and I mailed it. And within six weeks later, we received the attorney that we have now. The judge fired the two attorneys that we had and appointed Gina Bunn. And with the appointment of Gina Bunn, she, uh, of course, had to go meet Ivan and introduce herself. And he had to sign a waiver saying that he accepted her as his attorney. And the reason for the waiver was because she came from the attorney general's office and her name appears on quite a few of of the state's briefs from the attorney general's office because she was fighting to kill Ivan. So she's now fighting for Ivan and we still have her today. When I sent my brief to the federal judge um, and then we found out we had Gina the attorney in Dallas that was fired I'm not going to say his name um, when he was called and or notified that he was terminated released from the case he called me first time in a year that the man called me 
And I wanted to know why did I do that and blah, blah, blah. And I told him, I said, because you and your partner were not doing anything for Ivan. And I am here to help save his life, whether it's to get the death penalty gone, to get him out or to get him life with, you know, whatever. I don't want him murdered by the state. So this attorney goes on to cuss me. He's mad at me because he knows he just got banned by somebody with no law degree. And uh, he told me, he goes, well, you just killed your husband because whatever uh, you, by doing that, you put the nail in his coffin. And I'm like, I'm crying at that point. I'm like, why do you say that? He goes, because he's guilty as shit. And I'm like, really? He goes, look at the evidence. He's guilty. I said, did you investigate anything? He said, no. I looked at what the state had. So his own defense attorney that was doing his federal appeal didn't investigate and took the state's case at face value, just like everybody else did. And it's it's just hard because people say, yes, I want to help you, but it's going to cost you 15000 so you send them 15000 You You sign a document giving them a lien on your house so you pay the full amount. You know, I mean, you do what you have to do. And then when the money runs out, they're gone. And what happened when you tried to go to the Innocence Project? I went to the Innocence Project uh, meeting that they have every year. I went to Cal- Santa Clara, California, to Santa Clara University. And I met with Barry Sheck personally. And he said, send us everything you've got. He said, we'll take a look at it. So I sent them everything. And I was in touch with uh, Nicholas Goodness from the IP in New York. And they were close to taking our case. They told me that your case is too complex, it's too complicated, and there's too much that needs to be done. We, we don't have the resources for it. And the fact that we're not a DNA case, they couldn't take it. So they had to turn us down. A few years later, Tammy and Ivan got some more bad news. We had our first date. We've only had one. That's the execution date. That was set for uh, August 30th of 2011. We're actually, I was actually there for a visit. I can't remember when we got the date. It was within 90 days of August 30th. But uh, we were at visit. We had a really good visit. And I get home and um, I get a phone call from overseas. And it was from uh, Germany. And so I answered the phone and it was one of the uh, wives from one of the death row guys had called me and she said, how are you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, you don't know. And I hung up the phone. I knew what she was talking about. I hung up the phone and I went to the website and I saw we were put on the execution list. And what had happened was after our visit, they took Ivan straight from visitation to the um, major's office or sergeant, whoever, and informed him that they had signed the death warrant and took him to uh, death watch. And that's how we found out. What caused them to set the date then 
in, in 2011? Uh, they were just ready. Uh, they, we, all of our appeals were exhausted except for the Supreme Court, and we were waiting on the Supreme Court to, uh, to review our case or deny to hear it. And uh, they were just ready, and the state said it. It was scary. It was scary as hell, you know, knowing the day that he's going to die and nothing that I can do about it. So um, they didn't even notify Gina. I'm the one that told Gina. I had called her the next morning and told her about it. She said, all right. She goes, let me let, let me get on this. And she goes, I'll call you back. I was two weeks away from filling out my execution witness list fill out and turn in that paperwork as to what I'm going to do with my body, what I'm going to do with my remains. Um, you know, ha you know, having to deal with that was such a, you know, so, I mean, it was, it was horrible. In addition to that, you know, I had already, you know, started to write, to write letters saying goodbye to people, not knowing whether or not I was going to get a stay. A stay is a stay of execution which means that the court temporarily suspended Ivan's execution. Um, with regardless with what, you know, if with whatever happens with, with the courts, our, our, our marriage, our relationship, no matter what, we're gonna be in each other's lives and she's gonna do everything that she can to always, to always help me and, and get me home. That's, that's why I tell you, you know, she's, she's an amazing woman. It's hard, I've never, we've never, we've never touched hands. We've never, we've never even had a hug. Um, you know, those are difficult things, you know? It's, uh, you know, those are, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with. And obviously it's hard for Tammy to deal with too. And so I had to know what she says to people when they ask her, why would you marry a man on death row? Because I'm sure it comes up. It comes up and it's an uncomfortable question because you can't make somebody understand something that they've never been in. It's like walk in my shoes and then you'll understand. I had a very active life. I was ripping and running and living and, you know, I was enjoying my life. And this man came along for a reason. God put me in his life for a reason and feelings happen and it is what it is. And I don't try to justify anything or I don't have to explain it to you. You just respect my feelings and my decisions and if you don't like it then you don't you just step back to step away it's like if I don't like your wife that's not my business to tell you anything about your wife or your life it's your decision you have to live it and I respect that because that's your life yeah um but it, it's got to be it's got to be hard uh emotionally it is it's very hard it's very hard emotionally because you live for letters you live for visits and you live for, you know, the totality of our situation. You live for the reality of what is probably going to happen, you know. And what is that? Well, that he's probably going to be executed because that's just how it is. That's how the state is. That's how the punishment that he received is. That's the, in the means of all ends. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see about that. Yeah, I pray that doesn't happen. I mean, oh, God. But you can't ever take that out of your mind. And and uh, how do they do it in Texas, this lethal injection? 
Lethal injection, yes. Ugh. And then people, do people go to, can you, can you go if people wanted to, to go? Yeah, he, he has people that he can put on the list to go witness his murder. And then the victim's families, uh, a certain amount of them can go witness in the media. But this is like a, a family, a family affair because it was a family member that was murdered. So it would be both sides of Ivan's family there. One, one family side of the family there to support him and the other side, you know, hoping that this, this does happen. And they don't believe he did it. His cousin, James, James side of the family, they really don't believe he did it, but they, uh, they don't care. They just want somebody to die for it. That'll bring them closure. It'll make everything right, and the world will be peaceful again. I'm, I'm you know, is, is how I think they feel. And how do you know that they don't believe he did it? Because I've spoken to both. I've spoken to his cousin Elaine. I've, uh, well, of course, his mother, Ivan's mother, and just different things I've read and. Uh, I, I find it disrespectful if I was to call the family, so I haven't, but other people have, and but myself, I've never heard James's mother say anything, except for what uh, Elaine has told me and uh, Sylvia, Ivan's mother. That's the way that Tammy felt. However, since this interview, James' sister has expressed her feelings of Ivan's guilt. She does believe Ivan killed her brother James and Amy Kitchen. So while some members of James' side of the family have their doubts that Ivan committed the murders, others believe the jury made the right decision. Does it ever, ever go through your mind that Ivan might have actually done it? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Does it ever, ever go through your mind that Ivan might have actually done it? Oh, in the beginning, of course. When, when I read the trial transcript, before I started digging, I'm like, holy crap, this dude did this. You know, there was no doubt in my mind that he did it. But then once I started digging, asking questions, getting uh, court documents, police records, and I'm like, wait, some of this stuff doesn't add up. And there's so much that doesn't add up, so much that wasn't done. There's just so much that if the jury would have heard it, he would have never been convicted. And as a quick refresher of the case for this first episode of season two, here's Tammy recapping the state's case. Ivan called 
James a little after 11 o'clock and said he needed to talk to him. And James said, come on over. So when he hung up the phone, Ivan told Betcher, Amy Betcher, I'm going to kill James and Amy. Amy. And then he went over there and killed them and came back, got her, went back over to the crime scene, showed her the bodies. They switched cars, took the Corvette, went back to Ivan's apartment, went out partying, uh, showing off a, an engagement ring that Amy Betcher had on her hand. And then they went home back to their apartment, slept for a little while, and then left to go to Arkansas that Saturday morning. And then he had her throw clothing away and shoes away and James's watch away and everything, the IDs and all that, which makes no sense because why would Ivan steal their IDs? To me, that, that the IDs were never found. To me, that was a hit. Somebody put a hit out. And why do you say that? What does the uh, IDs signify? Because that's how you prove I was in their house. I got them. They're gone. I Look, their IDs are right here. I mean, I, I watch. It, you see it on TV, so that's what came to my mind. Why would he steal their identification, their driver's license? There's no reason. They said that Ivan broke in or went over there to kill them and, and get the drugs that James had in the house, but there was nothing out of disarray in the house. There was nothing moved, nothing. The house was immaculate except for the guest bedroom. And uh, James was in bed sleeping when Ivan went over there. So it doesn't, or when he was murdered, it doesn't make any sense. Tammy said the medical examiner told her that. When did you talk to the medical examiner after the trial and what did he tell you that wasn't really presented at trial? I probably talked to him two, oh, geez, 2007, 2008. I don't remember exactly when, but he uh, was kind enough to speak with me at, at great length and let me ask all the questions that I, I needed to ask. And he said that James was killed in his sleep. There was no doubt in his mind that James was sleeping when he was killed. The medical examiner on the case, Dr. William Rohr, declined an interview for this podcast. But this is what Tammy says he told her. This is hearsay because Tammy did not record the phone call. So you'll have to judge her credibility for yourself. In looking at the crime scene photos, it certainly appears that James could have been asleep. And you'll remember in episode one, one of the first responders on the scene, Susan Eisenberg, said this. Uh, we, I looked onto the bed and saw who I later found out to be James Mosqueda. He was also in a position to where they may have been asleep, they meeting himself and Amy in the bed prior to the offense. Uh, he was wearing um, a t-shirt and boxer shorts. So if the medical examiner did tell Tammy that, and what you're about to hear, it's a problem for the state's case because Ivan called James five minutes before he went over to the house. James would have been awake when Ivan got there. He said that James was in full rigor when the bodies were found. 
He also said that Amy was not. Amy was still movable at, at scene, which meant that she was not in full rigor, so they were not killed at the same time. Ivan said that he brought the Corvette back to James's house around 6, 11, 6, 13, something that morning, which was the tollway hit, shows when the Corvette was driven that morning. And he said he gave the keys to, to Amy, and then he got his Honda and he went home. The medical examiner told me that that is very probable, very plausible, and very explainable because he believes she was still alive at that time. Forensic pathology expert Dr. Judy Melanick concurs with that statement. You'll remember in episode 7, she said, Is it possible that she was still alive at 6.30 a.m.? Uh, yeah, it's possible, given that the rigidity hasn't completely set in yet. This was Dr. Melanick's assessment of time of death. It would be in the late morning, early afternoon of the 4th, not the 3rd. That would correspond with him having seen her alive in the morning. At around 6 a.m.? Yeah. If Ivan said he said last saw her alive at 6 o'clock that morning, I would buy it. I'm not buying that they were dead the night before. She was supposed to go shopping with her mom, so he doesn't know why she was up. He doesn't know anything that went on in the house, but he said he believes that it's very probable that she was alive at that time and that if the defense would have questioned him, they didn't ask him one question, if they would have questioned him on anything, he would have said that in court, but they didn't ask him. You'll remember that a big takeaway from season one was Ivan's state-appointed attorneys really made no attempt to prove Ivan's innocence. And here is another huge example of that. He also told me that he disagreed 100% with the blood spatter expert's testimony that the victims were kicked, beaten, and tortured, which explains the blood spatter on the walls and ceilings. He said that's absolutely not what that's from. He said that is from the gunshots. Um, he said that there were no marks, contusions, bruises, cuts, whatever, on anybody except James had one small one that had been there on his uh, shoulder, I believe. And then he said that, in his opinion, Amy was murdered. The final shot to her was on the bed, which was the head shot um, that is what the, all the blood spatter on the back of the, the wall behind the bed was from and that her body was drugged across the, across the bed, across James, and laid on the floor. And he said, and whoever killed both of them was covered in blood. There's no other way, because it was a bloody crime scene. There's no way that the person who committed these murders wasn't covered in blood. And again, when Ivan drove back to um, his apartment at roughly 12.18, right after midnight, in Amy's Mercedes, there was no blood in the Mercedes. No, no blood in the Mercedes, no blood in Ivan's apartment, nothing. If Ivan didn't do it, it's not like somebody else just did it. Someone else would have had to intentionally set up Ivan. Right. Because why? Why would you say that? Well, I mean, I don't think he did it. And so if he didn't do it, then... All this evidence ended up at his apartment. Somebody put it there. Somebody put it there. And naturally, Tammy does not believe Amy Betcher's story of what happened. Well, if Ivan was as, 
abusive to her as what she claimed during trial, then if Ivan would have told her to get down on the floor and lick the floor, she would have done it. So with that being said, he told, she said he told her to put the jeans, the socks in a trash bag with the IDs and whatever else and throw it away. So she folded the jeans, put them in the trash can, put the socks on top, and that was that was what she did. So I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, you saw the pictures of the socks. They were inside out with a clump of hair on the, in, well, you know, on the outside of the sock, which would have been the inside if you'd have been wearing them. The blood on the sock is not smeared. It's dropped. It looks like something was, you know, it was just dropped on there. So if you're wearing those socks and you're committing a murder, you're going to have blood somewhere. The blood's going to be smeared on the sock. It's going to be on the floor. It's going to be on a carpet. It was nowhere. There was no blood anywhere. Nowhere. Except on the walls. Except on the walls, right. Then there was one bloody footprint above Amy's, above uh, the victim, Amy, Amy Kitchen's head that was never, the photograph was never produced at trial. Nothing was ever said about it. I found it. I don't know how I came across it, but I found it. Nobody can explain it to me, where the footprint came from, whose it is, why is it there. But it's right above her head. But that, that was it. It was just a lot of blood everywhere and the two victims. Nothing else in the house was disturbed, nothing. Her purse was still neatly hanging over the doorknob in the bedroom, and there was nothing out of, out of order. She was an immaculate housekeeper. She even had carpet in the garage immaculate housekeeper. Amy's story is that they go back over there and then they're rummaging through everything, trying to find drugs or money. Did it look like it had been rummaged through? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There was nothing disturbed. Absolutely nothing. Officer Susan Eichenberg would agree. This was her assessment of the scene in episode one. It appeared to be more of a hit than a robbery or burglary. And from my experience, the reason I say that is because no drawers were turned open or even open. I mean, the house was very tidy. There was no evidence of anyone, any assailant looking for jewelry, um, anything valuable. The hit was calculated and the crime scene was bloody. I then asked Tammy if she thought that Amy was actually at the crime scene, whether Ivan was or not. I don't I don't believe she was there. I from reading her testimony over and over and over and then her cross examination, I believe that the case was made from the state getting her ready to testify with the with the evidence that they had. They had to make their story plausible, and they had to get her to go along with it. You know, she was on probation. She could have been sent back to prison or sent to prison. They made a deal with her to do this, do that, let her go back to Arkansas. She didn't ever have to report for probation after that. She didn't have to pay any fees. They took care of her, and so her testimony fit what the state tried to make. I don't believe she saw anything. 
So Ivan's been in there. Uh, Ivan's been on death row for about 18 years now. Um, he's got to have some ideas about if it wasn't him, who it was. What does Ivan say really happened that night? We think that it was... We don't know to say that Joe did it, but we think that Carlos and Anthony have a part in it, but we think that Frank Perez the gentleman who was living in their house, they living in James and Amy's house, we think he has everything to do with it. Because, okay, I come and you let me live in your house for a, a couple of weeks. Um, I've been in your house. You don't let me have a key. So I can't come in as I want to or leave when I want to. You have a washer and dryer. I'm free to use anything in your home that I need to. But on one particular night, I decide to drive an hour away to do my laundry. But I don't have a key to get back in, but I'm going to drive an hour away that night to do my laundry. And then James and Amy get murdered. And he comes back to the house. He has no laundry with him. Couldn't account for where he was this time, that time. And then comes up with, oh, I was here. I was there. I did this. I did that. But... The family of James and Amy said that this guy came in the house once the home was released to the family, uh, digging through drawers and cabinets, trying to get money, checks, money orders, business forms and whatever for the mortgage company because he's going to keep it running. They have to make him leave. So we think he had everything to do with it. Yeah, it was the only room that was in disarray in the house was his the room he was staying in. And in the crime scene photos, you see photographs of pillows on the bed that have no business being in that room. They came from the spare room because it matches that bedroom set. Now, this is very interesting. In the crime scene photos, it clearly shows a pillow from the guest bedroom on James and Amy's bed, and it is soaked with blood. So why did someone go into the guest bedroom and get that pillow? It was out of place in the crime scene. Why would you go an hour away to do your laundry when three weeks, two weeks, however long you've been there prior, you're using their washer and dryer? Why do you go an hour away to do laundry and then when you come back, you have no laundry with you? And when does he say he came back? The next day. He had, him and James had a meeting a Saturday morning to close a loan or something like that. And uh, he said he went to the office and James never showed up. So he called and called and never got a hold of James. And so he just left and went on about his day and then received a call from somebody. I don't remember who telling them what had happened that afternoon. Frank said Dino Manry, one of his buddies at a car dealership in Dallas, called him and told him about the murders. I've spoken with Dino, and we'll get into that later this season. And another intriguing element that we didn't have time to get into last season, and we'll be investigating, is the murder weapon. Now, has Ivan ever said that, yeah, you know, I used to carry a gun or anything to you? Ivan said he never had a gun, and nobody that I've ever talked to ever said they ever saw him with a gun. The murder weapon, that 380 caliber pistol, will be a major plot point because... We have the name of the, the gun owner that never came out in court. 
Right. And, and that was weird, too, because nobody ever asked who the owner was. Nobody ever asked. Nobody ever placed the gun in Ivan's hand. Nobody. All they said was the gun was reported not stolen. That's it. There was nothing else. Nobody put the gun in Ivan's hand or Carlos's hand or anybody's hand. Nobody ever did that. Well, actually, Amy Betcher testified that Ivan had the gun, but it was never determined how he supposedly got it from the registered owner when the man's name was sitting right there in the case file. So I'll be chasing down that lead as well. Nobody ever asked any questions about that. And the guy that owned the gun lived like in between James and Ivan. So it wasn't somebody that lived in another town, miles and miles and miles away. He was right there in James's neighborhood. No one ever talked to him, right? If they did, there's no report of it anywhere. This interview with Tammy, even though it wound up in season two, it was the first interview I did for this podcast in 2019. And about two weeks after this interview, I was going to visit Ivan for the first time. When you meet Ivan, you'll understand what I'm about to tell you. Ivan is meticulous. He is a micromanager. It drives me crazy. He is very detail-oriented. He doesn't do anything halfway. Everything he does is thought through 100%. This crime was not thought through 100%. This is not something that he, no, it was not, no, he, no, he, no, he didn't do it. And that right there, you know, is one of the things that convinces me that he didn't was because it's so piss poor. And that's not who he is. He doesn't do anything halfway. So shortly after Tammy's interview, I went to Livingston, Texas to interview Ivan for two days at the Polunsky death row unit. He said a lot of things that stuck with me. And one started a chain reaction that will become the biggest breakthrough in the case in 20 years. Remember, along with the murders, Ivan was convicted of the robbery of three items. The Corvette, Amy Kitchen's engagement ring, and James Rolex. So when I met with him in prison, Ivan said to me, Matt, they painted me like I was down on my luck and needed cash. They said I stole James's Rolex and Amy Betcher said I threw the Rolex out of the window of the Corvette. He said, Matt, who throws a Rolex out of a window? And then he emphasized, a Rolex. I had never really thought about it. It was just another weird part of the story that didn't make any sense. But yeah, that's a good point. Who does throw a Rolex out of a window? Ivan said, if I needed money and I had a Rolex... I would have pawned it at any pawn shop between Dallas and Arkansas. That did make sense, and throwing a Rolex out of a window did not. So about a week later, I'm talking to Ivan's Aunt Penny for the first time. I tell her what Ivan said about throwing the Rolex out of the window. The next day, she calls me and says, Gladys has that Rolex. Gladys is James' mom. That's why I text you, because... I I thought, well, maybe he already knows who has the Rolex watch. Why would Amy say Ivan threw it out the window when they never had it? Next time on Cousins by Blood.
Thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast. We need as many people to hear this as possible. Because as we all know, Ivan could get his execution date at any point. And then there's a 90-day countdown to execution or clemency. To find out more about the case and to see pictures, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cousins by Blood Podcast. If you have any information about this case, you can message through social media or email us at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Ahmad Masadi and RTBF for usage of their 2011 interview of Ivan. Ivan's letter, read by Ryan Freed. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.